0: Hello, everyone.
1: Welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will. We have Brian with us today. What's up, Heretics? Don't. Don't. Sorry. I know that's triggering to you now. Oh. It takes me. <laughs> I take that very personally.
2: Uh,
0: we have David Paulman with us today. I mean, <clears throat> that guy from Dillard's. How are you, David?
2: I'm doing well, and I, I'm very disappointed that uh, Brian has usurped my place as the co-host of The Church Split.
0: I'm back. Uh, yeah, you, you, you're, your time uh, on the show as co-host has been well appreciated and well loved. But unfortunately, uh, the people have spoken. You and I are too sassy together. And we have to add Brian, who is definitely not sassy.
1: <laughs> I'll do my best
0: so um we are continuing our series this is actually the last book review i almost kind of wish because of everything we now would have done a fine tooth comb chapter by chapter um because i wasn't expecting this to happen but whatever so anyway uh guys welcome to live chat uh carmen uh newtson uh i will be doing a video eventually on annihilationism just not today just so you know but anyway um so we are going to be jumping into this uh chapter 10 is where we're at but before we do one of the things that david and i've been getting criticized a lot with is the fact that we are only operating on the first edition um and not the second edition luckily for us brian you got the
1: second edition. I do my best Vanna White impression. So I actually tried to order the first edition off of Amazon and it said the first edition. Then in my mailbox, I got this one. So I have like, I don't know, 40 more pages of garbage than you have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, uh, I have 337. Brian, you have what? 374 or something? 376. Yeah. 76. So poor Brian. And now for those who do not know, Brian was raised Calvinist. Uh, it was. Yeah, and he was raised at, uh,
1: wasn't it, Calvin Reformed Church or something? Yep. So Calvin Christian Reformed Church, went to Calvin College. My grandpa taught at Calvin College in the classics department, did a lot of John Calvin work. <laughs> My uh, other grandpa was a, was a CRC um, chaplain in the Air Force. So needless to say, you understand Calvinism? <laughs> I, th- I think I did. <laughs> he wasn't really a
2: Calvin.
0: Oh, I, I apologize. I did. I did not know.
1: So uh, <laughs> all,
2: all true Calvinists will persevere until the end.
1: <laughs> but I was baptized in the in the Calvinist church. I made profession of faith. So I'm in. I'm in the club. I can't leave.
0: I just wanted Locked to give in? a quick shout out here to my buddy Warren. Idle Killer, hello, buddy. Sorry, he's a shout out to my running crew, and I had to make sure I shouted him back. All right, here, take your mouse back, Brian. All
1: right, I'm going to control the comments today because Will gets a little distracted. It's exciting. <laughs> All right, so I'm a social butterfly. I like to talk.
0: Do you want to do favorite comment first? Our yes, our <laughs> favorite comment from our most recent video. Um, for those of you guys who uh, have not been paying attention, we did a video on the whole recent story on the John MacArthur situation where he excommunicated a woman from his church for, uh, not returning to her abusive husband. How dare she? Um, so, uh, Marty Kano, uh, wanted to make sure that we understood that, uh, they quote unsubbed because of this topic. Uh, and the explanation later on was he is my favorite pastor and I didn't like it (laughs) that will said that he was overrated. I didn't even say he was a bad guy, just so overrated. That's good grief, y'all. Um, so uh, my favorite comment was the fact that someone, uh, to shout out Melissa, it's not an airport, bro. You don't need to announce your departure. We're not here to win popularity contests. So I don't know if people thought by something by the name of church, the church split rang a we really <laughs> care about the status quo, but we purposely named it so we didn't have to worry about it. And people still seem to be missing the message, but
1: we do love the comments. So yep. keep them coming, <laughs> keep them rolling.
0: All right. So let's jump into chapter 10 already. Um, I just wanted to say that, uh, as I find his first open remark here, funny on page 229, at least in the first edition, modern evangelicals are mushy on the cross. We, we sh- the, well, that's where he demonstrated his love. So I don't understand why it's bad to be mushy on the cross, but Um, He says that pitifully few could even begin to make a biblically-based presentation of the meaning of such terms as the atonement, which I find ironic because I was recently called a heretic for my views, which I hold to a classical view of the atonement, uh, which is a mixture between ransom, Christus Victor, and um, recapitulation. Okay? And uh, I just find it funny because no matter what, like there is not a singular verse. And I know now, David, for Dr. White, who might actually see this video, he apparently only recently realized that you and I might disagree from time to time. So uh, not like we announced it at the beginning. So (laughs) um, now we're both going to be answering it from our own varying perspectives. But you affirm penal substitutionary atonement.
2: Yes, and that'll come out in uh, today's, you know. Okay,
0: review. great. So do you, and I just real quick, do you affirm that God poured his wrath out on his son? Yes. Okay, so, that, so you affirmed classic PSA. So um, I think we can all say that uh, the Bible never explicitly says that we have to read into various things and come to various conclusions. So um, I don't know if you could agree with that, but I would yeah, say that it,
2: for for me, it's not like it's not like a salvation issue if somebody disagrees with me on the nature of the atonement, right? I right. Think we all we all agreed, right, that the atonement is vicarious. We all agree that uh, Christ was our substitute in some sense, uh, but it's you know this particular mechanics of how that works out, right? So I'm a classical Arminian, and classical Arminians do affirm the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement uh we may have some different nuances from the calvinists because even within you know even within psa there are you know di- differing uh strands within that but um yes that would be the category that i would uh classify myself into
0: okay great um great so then as he moves on i just wanted to point out that he says the death of christ is the only means of salvation but i just wanted to make sure i was nitpicky and said uh no, it's the resurrection <laughs> I just, just wanted to throw that out there um, because I, I have this has been a thing for me in general. I think Protestants often focus too much on the death and not enough on the resurrection because I think that's the main thing. But anyway, so let's go ahead and continue forward. I just wanted to get a few <laughs> cursory statements out of the way, and then I got a lot to say on the atonement. Um, and then that's the part where after that I'll pretty much shut up and let you guys primarily take it. So, <laughs> All right. Who's going next?
2: Well, I was going to say on that point, um, it seems like Calvinists have an issue with there being any sorts of like emotions or emotional, um, you know, responses. Like when he says like, we're like modern Christians are like mushy, right? About the cross. Uh, there's nothing wrong with like having emotional attachments to um, these doctrines. They, they affect us. They affect our understanding of God. And so it, it's perfectly appropriate to like, um, have a sort of emotional response to these sorts of things now we shouldn't be basing our theology on emotions of course but um i don't know as calvinists like seem that they like want to say that people who aren't calvinists are like all very emotional or they, they just tend to disparage emotion uh, and i think that might be what we're seeing come out in uh white there
0: well the ifb did the same thing growing up um, they they were like oh you know all the fields and because uh, uh, that was their way to attack modern Christian music. And one of the, my responses simply is this, if you are talking about the son of God who came down, lived on this earth, and then died, suffered betrayal and torture and death for you and for me, and that doesn't make you slightly emotional, I'm just gonna call you a broken human <laughs> or a serial killer. So, because you should have at least some sort of emotion due to thankfulness for what God has done for you.
1: I mean, only if you've been decreed to have that emotion.
0: Only if you've been decreed to have that, yeah. Um, So, all right, we'll go ahead and move forward there. Uh, Go ahead and take it away on, because you have yours broken down uh, about how he misrepresents other people's viewpoints, and Brian, feel free to interject. Oh yeah, I will.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, page 230, quote, those who do not believe God intends to save a particular people, but instead tries to save the maximum number possible, will reject immediately the idea that Christ's death was intended to actually redeem the elect perfectly, end quote. So presumably White has Arminians in mind here. The problem is Arminians don't actually say this. White puts the phrase the maximum number possible in quotation marks as though he's quoting someone, yet per usual he cites no sources. Now as I've said before, Arminians do not believe that God is trying and failing to save as many as possible. Rather, we believe that God actually saves all and only those who believe. So again, we see White grossly misrepresenting uh, the Arminian position.
0: Well, one of the things also is that we all affirm that God cho- cho- chooses to believe a particular people. I just choose that, I just believe that he chooses to save those who believe. <laughs> like.
1: Well, it's ironic too, because on the very next page, right? So he's kind of setting up this straw man of Arminians. And the very next page, He's then deriding Arminians for strawmanning Calvinism, and he says, they don't even believe Christ died for sinners, but just for them. So it's like, hey, here's a straw man, and then, oh, but they, they use a straw man, isn't it terrible? It's like, you, it's just the same thing. It's so ironic. I raise your straw man with another straw man.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes, it, it's true. And again, he goes on, and uh, page 233 repeats this argument again on page 265 and 266. Quote, historic Arminians saw that believing in the idea of substitutionary atonement would not fit with their system of theology, end quote. Now, to his credit, White goes on to cite one Arminian theologian, Kenneth Grinder, and as far as I'm aware, this is the only Arminian that gets cited in the book, and he cites him in support of this point. Unfortunately for White, Grinder is simply wrong when he states that the acceptance of the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement is a recent innovation within the Arminian tradition. Grinder's point is demonstrably false. Jacob Arminius himself held very strongly to a penal substitutionary atonement, as did John Wesley, and these are probably the two most important figures within Arminian theology. Now, in more recent times, Arminian theologians, such as Leroy Forlines, Robert Piccarilli, Stephen Ashby, and Matthew Pinson, have not only endorsed the penal substitutionary model, they actually defend it against other models. And, you know, for anyone seeking further documentation on that, I'm going to refer you to Roger Olson's excellent book, Arminian Theology, Myths, and Realities. He dedicates an entire chapter uh, basically detailing that plenty of Arminians, have always held to the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. So it's just not true that all Armenians, you know, uh, reject this view of the atonement. Uh, White adds no nuance. Now, obviously not all Armenians accept this view, right? There is diversity within the Armenian tradition. Unlike Calvinists, we don't demand that a person has to accept the penal substitutionary view, but White is giving the impression that Armenians wholesale reject that theory uh, again, it's not entirely his fault, because he is depending on Grinder, who just gets the facts wrong on this point. Uh, so I'm not going to lay all of the fault for this on White. But again, Dr. White, this is why you need to read more than one Arminian. Like, you need to read pretty broadly uh, the Arminian tradition if you want to criticize it.
1: So, oh, go ahead, Brian. Oh, you go ahead. No, no, mine's going to be a while. Go ahead. Well, I just <laughs> wanted to add, um, you know, he talks a bit about foreknowledge and and since this is my first time getting to respond, so I'm going to add a little bit of context from the rest of the book. Um, but he talked about he doesn't seem to really kind of grasp the Armenian view of foreknowledge, the Molinistic view of foreknowledge, um, or I would just call it the traditional view of foreknowledge. And he just essentially defines it as beloved, and I find, kind of find that ironic. Um, and on page 235 here, and when I use page numbers, I'm using the new ones. I'm using the modern more accurate, non-Old Paths version of this book. Um, but on page 235, he says that uh, we must allow the words used in scripture to carry their full weight and meaning, but he doesn't seem to do that with the word foreknowledge. And then on page 271, is another, he says it's another instance where the historic term is being redefined, and I'm just thinking like foreknowledge. And on page 312, he complains that is stripping the term irresistible from all theological meaning, and I'm thinking like foreknowledge. And uh, so I've watched several debates from White because I've actually been a huge fan of Dr. White, especially the, deba- the debates. And he says quite often that you can't use one side of an argument to make one point and then turn around and use the other side of that argument to make another point. It's, it's logically inconsistent. So I just thought, as I was reading here, every time there was something that was... He was talking about Geisler redefining a word or using it in a way that he thought was wrong or stripping it of meaning. Um, I just kept thinking it back when he just kind of dismissed foreknowledge and didn't understand divine simplicity at all and, and redefined it to fit his soteriology, and, but he doesn't like that when Geisler does it. That was my point from this early part of the chapter.
2: You mean White has trouble keeping to his own standards?
1: <laughs>
0: Weird, right? Hey, Nick Quint, nice seeing you in the comments. Yes, I love your book review. Everyone should go check out yours for a more thorough and less cut-up version of this.
1: And now you can say his
0: name correctly. I know, I'm so happy. (laughs) I was so confused for so long. All right, I'm taking off my gloves on this part, and David, you do not agree with me. And I'm just going to let everyone know that he doesn't. All right, moving forward, he says that evangelicals say on page 230, "If you do not believe Christ's death, even though even though suff- offered in your place, will do you no good. You will still suffer for your sins. Christ truly wants to save you if you will but believe." And he says this as evangelicals say this, like as in like evangelicals are totally wrong for believing that Christ's death was enough and offered in our place. He goes, "Is this the message preached by the apostles?" And I would say yes, and also by Jesus Christ in John 12, 32. But is this the preaching of the cross? Calvin is saying no. And they imagine this by the way, because remember, he says that we have a bad view of the atonement. Now parts of this, that David is going to uh, agree with. He says that we have a bad view of the atonement. Meanwhile, he's denying that Christ could die for everybody. Or that did, he did die for everything. And, and they do so because of the biblical doctrine of the atonement. In its simplest terms, the reformed belief is this. Christ's death saves sinners. It does not make the salvation of sinners a mere possibility. It does not provide a theoretical atonement. It requires no additions, whether they, they be meritorious works of men or the autonomous act of faith flowing from, quote, free will. Sorry, I'm reading quite a bit here, but I just want to make sure everyone hears me first. Christ's death saves every single person that it was intended to save. All I'm hearing here. Is that God intends to only save some. So either God is unable to save everyone or mankind isn't worth saving or that he shows partiality in whom he does save. Because if we're all wretches before God, him choosing some and not others shows partiality, which we know there is no partiality with God. And then on top of that, it's saying that Uh, God chooses arbitrarily, so it shows the fact that mankind must not be worth saving, except only to bring himself glory. It is right here that the first objection surfaces, he says. Those who do not believe God intends to save a particular people, but instead tries to save. This is false. No one says he tries to save. He offers to save. It is a hand outstretched. It's not like, oh, come on, I'm trying. I'm just trying. If only I could, he goes, no, I have saved. I save all who come to me and believe. So this whole tries thing is, it, it is a purposeful do not anyone who believes that God Christ died for all don't fall for the tries thing. Deny it. It's a false frame. It's intended to put you in a bad light. God successfully saves all who believes and then. Um, also, this is I also want to say this that this idea that Christ's death saves every single person that it was intended to save, otherwise, he fails that which he tries. This argument is purely philosophical
1: it in is. its
0: nature. It's purely philosophical, it is not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it say something a phrase like this. It is purely philosophical. And remember, White discounted a philosophical view at the beginning of this book, which he mocked David and I for y- referencing. That philosophy is and everything you can't get rid of it, and his only response was "duh," which is a really stupid response to the fact. Look, M- Mr. White, I didn't make the argument. You did. You're the one who discounted philosophy. Don't get mad at us when we press back that philosophy's always been a thing. Of course duh that's why we said duh it's part of everything you shouldn't make that argument instead you should say i i think there's philosoph- consistent philosophical and biblical reasons don't discount philosophy just because you don't like actually i know why he doesn't like it is because calvinism leads to philosophical contradictions it violates the law of non contradiction all throughout moving forward i have a few more things to say than i'm giving the floor He's sorry roll this whole thing Cheers is like I, if you, you only saw how much i've written in here <laughs> Then he goes but beware this topic of the atonement he's talking about is fraught with the emotional pitfalls and then he continues on to say sentimentality is no replacement for doctrinal purity and this is, and this is essentially a gaslight and a shift saying if you feel wrong about this you shouldn't trust your feelings at all meanwhile God's law is written on our hearts and we know God shows no partiality and that he is consistent and loving in his nature and that he and that laws of logic exist if you're having an emotional pitfall, you have to start asking yourself, is this because I have a legitimate emotional reason? Then he continues on and talks about the limited atonement. But um, he says it's the favorite target of Arminian preachers. Calvinists are so far off that they preach that Christ's death is limited. They don't even believe Christ died for sinners, but just for them, as Brian pointed out. But then he says that he has honestly, I uh, honestly seen this kind of rhetoric on the internet and in self published books by, from fundamentalists. But my question is, is how is this rhetoric? He's quoting these made up Arminians, um, and says Calvinists are so far off that they preach that, that Christ's death is limited and that they don't even believe Christ died for sinners, but just for them. How is this rhetoric? You are literally talking about limited atonement. That quote makes no sense to me because he, again, does that make sense? You guys following there? He's saying that we are saying that, oh, but we're saying that Christ's death is limited. And he's going, that's a rhetoric. I'm like, no, how's that rhetoric? That's an accurate description. <laughs> you just, I, I've noticed with Calvinists, when you pinprick the central issue, they start squirming and say you're misrepresenting them. Because First, I didn't, I didn't cover it with flowery language.
1: I will shut up now. Someone go ahead.
2: Do you have any thoughts on that, Brian?
1: I don't know how to to go after that that rant. That was pretty epic. <laughs> go well, ahead, David.
2: It, it's actually it's good cuz uh, my the next uh, you know section I had in my notes was about that same section of the book uh, and yeah, I just want to, you know, reiterate some things that yeah, first everyone agrees that Christ's death saves sinners. Neither Arminians nor any other Christians believe that Christ's death merely made salvation possible. What White fails to realize is that there's no contradiction in affirming both that Christ's death makes salvation possible and that it actually saves. It makes salvation possible for all, but it's not a mere possibility because it also makes salvation actual for believers. So White's final statement there when he says that uh, it requires no additions, that's problematic. Surely White agrees with the clear biblical witness that one must believe before one is saved. Presumably, he doesn't want to say that the elect were actually saved when Christ died on the cross. But if that's correct, then White is forced to agree that the addition of faith is actually necessary for the atonement to save. So he can't have his cake and eat it too.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um,
1: All right, Brian, anything else you want to say here? Um, Actually, I had one point of agreement with White. See, he's going to like me because I'm going to agree with him. Um, We did make a prediction before the show that White's going to be like, oh, Paulman and Hess suck, but Brian's a good
0: guy. And if anyone knew how much more mean Brian was than I am, you guys wouldn't even
1: know. I'm just an extrovert, so you get to hear all my rants. (laughs) So page 238 in the second edition, um, he says the number of those in him is identical with the number of the elect. And I don't think there's any disagreement there across maybe all of the, soteriological, the, the soteriological frameworks. I think we all agree that those that are in Christ are elect. Um, it's identical. I don't think there's a change in number there. I don't I don't even understand why he's trying to even make that point. I'm like, yeah, I agree. The ones it, in Christ are the elect. <laughs> rhetorical blow, that's all it is. Kind of so like agree.
0: When, with Stratton when he's like, well, what's the context of that? Well, in Isaiah, it's blah, 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 blah. And the context didn't change the meaning at all. It just somehow made people think he was making a point when he wasn't i don't know all right uh on page 232 a common but not fully reformed assertion is that christ's death was sufficient to save every single human being but efficient to save only the elect while the statement carries truth it misses the most important issue whether it was christ's intention to make full and complete atonement for every single individual making salvation theoretically possible but not actual so this might kind of my whole thing where he's like. I, this is why, again, it says it devalues man. That's my view of the atonement is that Christ, uh, died and defeated sin, death and redeemed us from Satan's clutches and hell and brought us unto himself. Um, but when you're saying here that like, oh, you know, it was sufficient to save everyone, but not efficient to save everyone. Then you have to start asking, why is it not? Why, if it's sufficient? Why is it, doesn't it do it efficiently? Why is it not efficacious? It must be because god is arbitrarily choosing people or because man is not valuable enough to save so just to save one he can claim to be merciful Uh, none of this it actually again people wonder why that the picture of calvinism is so repugnant to so many people this is why and it's also not in consistency with the rest of scripture uh you have any thoughts on that real quick on the sufficiency versus efficacy
2: well uh No, not on that part now.
0: Okay, all right, we can move forward. All right, so pretty straightforward. All right, go ahead, guys. All
2: right, page 235, quote, If Christ became a curse on our behalf, and if he sacrificially bore in his body on the tree our sin, there is only one possible result, the perfect salvation of all those for whom Christ died, end quote. Now, I think that White is offering the strongest argument for limited atonement that is available here namely the completed language which the New Testament uses to describe the atonement. Arminians believe that the atonement is provisional prior to faith. So how are we supposed to understand this completed language used in regard to the atonement? I believe that the answer lies in understanding the elasticity of language. We often speak of provisional acts as being completed uh, or finished. For example, if I were to say that my doctor's diagnosis saved my life, I don't mean that no further treatment, surgery, or med- medication was necessary, right? I just mean that uh, that, that was necessary, right? Uh, so even though I'm speaking of the diagnosis as sufficient, I still believe that in light of, you know, the numerous biblical affirmations of the necessity of faith for salvation, we're justified in understanding the statements about the atonement in the same way. It's spoken um, in a completed way, even though additional steps are required, namely faith. The alternative is to deny that salvation is by faith, and that's something which I'm just not willing to do.
0: Fair. And uh, on page 234, he says, It is very difficult to understand upon what basis the Father could forgive those who repent and believe, especially since there is no substitution and hence no payment of the penalty of sin. Because he's making the assertion here that if you don't believe in his particular, not just view of the atonement, but as a particular soteriology, that therefore there must not be a substitution, or at least a payment of some sort. All atonement theories, as someone who has studied them pretty pretty dramatically, and I have friends of mine who are messianic, uh, we all affirm that there was a payment, but we affirm that Christ's death, his blood covers our sin, which withholds us from the wrath of God, which is held up and stored up against all unrighteousness, which is why he's a Passover lamb, because the blood over the doors allowed the angel of death to pass over them because the blood covered them. Y'all, it's almost like there's a parallel here or something. I don't know, but apparently, if you don't agree with him, how, how could there be a, a no payment? This is ridiculous. Anyway, the other thing I wanted to make sure I, I pointed out. Now, uh, Dr. Dillards, um, my question <laughs> to you is, uh, how old is Calvinism?
2: Mm, few hundred years, you know, maybe about hundred 500.
0: Reformation isk, right? Right around that. Some Something about a, a Martin Luther guy and a hammer and nail and this other French dude with a really big beard and something about predestination. Who burnt so,
2: people at the stake.
0: Burning people at the stake with green wood. Anyway. <laughs> um, so now <laughs> on page 234, he says. Modern Arminians are generally unaware of the history of Arminianism and the fact that the phrases quote, that Jesus took the place of sinners or quote, Jesus died for us or quote, Jesus death, paid the penalty of sin are borrowed from Calvinism. (laughs) He is making the claim here that to say that Jesus died for us is a phrase exclusively in calvinism i'm sorry even augustine and anselm there's people who came before them that affirm such statements and they were not calvinist Another emphatically wrong statement that when I read that, I my obj- dropped to the floor because it is so innately false. See, now the difference is between this p- statement and my, our statements on the Reformation that White was saying that we made no claim, that we were all wrong on, is that we never made claims of the things that he was refuting. But here, he actually makes a claim, a historical claim and it is outright false. All right,
1: I'm done. Continue. Well, to add on this, I had this point much later, but um, on page 302, he's essentially upset with Geisler or saying that he's unaware that he's actually borrowing some theology from Roman Catholicism and essentially saying it's wrong because of that. He actually applies the genetic fallacy there, and I think it's funny because if you borrow, if, let's just assume he's right. Borrowing from Calvinism makes it wrong Catholicism but if you borrow it no if you borrow from Calvinism it makes it wrong the Arminians are wrong they don't know where they oh, got it I from see. borrow from Catholicism it's wrong because the Catholics are wrong so I don't know which way to go with white here is is do I have to believe can I believe in Jesus Christ and that Jesus is God because the Catholics do is am I just too close to Rome here is that a, that's a Calvinist view too? Is it wrong because Calvinists believe that? I don't. I honestly can't follow this logic here. It's because it's not logical. He uses the <laughs> genetic fallacy all the time. It's, it's from Rome. It's like
0: a good chunk of all of our theology is from Rome because it's almost like we were one
1: church and then it broke off into other churches. Oh, I can't handle it. Can I? Can I just add, like we've done a lot with the IFB. I don't understand. The IFB and, the, and, and Calvinism has such a strong aversion to anything that's even close to Roman Catholicism. Like, that's, that's an argument within itself. Well, if they're just going to take you back to Rome. It's like, okay. Like, some of that stuff was true, right? <laughs> like, that we can't just throw out the whole baby with the bathwater. Okay, there was parts of it that we liked. Luther liked some parts. Calvin liked some parts. Right. Well, and then also,
0: my last point here is he says... Uh, if Christ became a curse on our behalf, and if he sacrificially bore in his body on the tree our sins, there is only one possible result, the perfect salvation of all for whom Christ died. And then of course he makes it out like it's only the elect I would argue that, and I know you would disagree with me, uh, David, so that's okay. but I'm just going to I would say I would argue that if Christ truly took the penalty and really bore all of God's wrath on mankind's behalf, that that would actually lead to universalism. Um, and I've, I can more articulate that argument a different time. but I'm more making that statement of like, well, actually, because he says the only thing that follows. well actually a few things could follow from that and i would argue i think it makes more sense of universalism with such a statement um i know again david you disagree and that's okay
2: (laughs) i won't debate you on it here
0: okay cool maybe we actually might be fun to a conversation for you and i to have some time we have coffee and chat over the channel about the atonement it'd be a good time
2: it it could be a blast but white is not you know limited to having uh you know kind of tensions in his own thought when it comes to when it's all right to borrow from people and when it's not all right to borrow from people, regardless of such borrowing really even takes place. But uh, it, it was really interesting to me, right? He makes much out of Hebrews 7.25 when he's arguing for limited atonement, right? It says that Jesus is able to save those who come to God through him. And so uh, basically White's implication is that this contradicts Arminianism because White apparently thinks that we don't believe that Jesus has this ability. Obviously, that's false. But leaving that aside, White sees this statement as the ground for understanding Jesus's final words on the cross. It is finished. White says that this stands in contrast to the claim that salvation is possible, and this is taken as evidence for limited atonement. Frankly, the contradiction here shines luminously. Hebrews 7.25 states that Jesus is able to save those who come to God. This implies that there are some who have not yet come to God, and thus some who are not yet saved, but will be saved when they do come to God. The saving is conditional upon coming. This completely contradicts White's claim that Jesus' words, it is finished, should be understood as saying that the work of salvation is finished. On the contrary, we should, on the basis of Hebrews 7.25, understand these words to be saying that the work necessary to make salvation possible is finished. White's interpretation of Jesus' words not only contradicts every statement in scripture which states that uh, one has to believe in order to be saved, but it contradicts the very verse which he says provides the lens through which we should understand those words. (laughs)
1: yes um yeah that's just funny i i just think the timing aspect of it too even in calvinism when you believe that regeneration has to happen before faith um that still is creating this timing mechanism right they're they're unregenerate uh hateful towards god everything they do is of the flesh so they're not saved at that point but then at some point in time they're they're magically regenerated maybe they see Jesus on the road to Damascus, maybe they just get a normal old regeneration, we don't really know, but eventually that timing happens and now they're saved. So there is a time period even then, so there is a potential for that salvation prior to being regenerated as well. So I think we just struggle, I think a lot of people struggle with just putting God in time and trying to rationalize what we read here and not understand that a lot of times God is speaking outside of time in general. So, well, which is why difference. also
0: there's different views of God in yes. time, outside of time, part of time. This, uh, we had a Warren in here, and I, I know he talked about time being part of God's nature. Ryan Mullins has discussed and Dr. Ryan Mullins is brilliant, um, and he's got a lot to say there. But one of the things I wanted to point out here is that page 238, uh, this brings us to a vital truth that Jesus Christ intercedes for the elect of God. I just want to point out that, yes, but the elect are those who believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitionally what it's always been. If you read Jude, and a lot of scholarship has come out on this, if you read what Judaism has always believed, they believe that all those who followed God were the elect. They believe it as a group. Like those who are part of this group are elected by God because it's this group. In other words, one of the things that Geister says, and I, I agree with the analogy, is that God predestined the bus, not the passengers. <laughs> it's like, yes, if you're part of my little group here, yes, you get to you. You are my elect. If you
1: aren't part of this group you're out but then um, that violates the the philosophy of it being a personal salvation yeah why by the way <laughs> did you, were you about is that your cue no up? i will say that later i just okay you just right. made me think of it we're, we're foreshadowing our, at one of brian's <laughs> points
0: all right so um i'm not actually going to uh get too much more into this part i have a lot on the on the atonement but i don't want to keep just prattling on uh we can I, we can move forward all
2: I'll right so sorry, did you want to say something to Brian? No, go ahead. All right. White turns to defend limited atonement from Romans 8, 32 through 34. The verse reads, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So White adduces from the fact that the pronoun us refers to believers in this context. When White says that the Son was delivered for us, this must mean only for us. He makes that argument on page 237 through 238. Now, White would have done well to brush up on basic logic before writing this line, because it's plainly obvious that it does not follow from the fact that Jesus died for the elect, that therefore he only died for the elect. Like, literally no one's going to disagree that Jesus died for the elect. White needs to find a verse that says he only died for them. Nothing in Romans 8 limits the scope of Christ's death. It just doesn't.
1: Facts. I had nothing to add. Fair. I have all my snarky notes later. Okay. <laughs> okay.
2: Want me to move on to Hebrews 7? Yeah, let's go. All right. White moves to defend limited atonement from Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Quote, the former, pr- not quote from White, quote from the actual text. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently therefore he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So White infers from this text that, uh, quote, Christ intercedes for all those for whom he died, and quote, the scope of atonement then is the scope of intercession, page 241. Now what I want to know is by what rule of inference can this conclusion be drawn? The text says nothing about Christ's death, much less that the scope of the atonement and Christ's intercession are coextensive. So White is asserting things that are not stated in the text, and they're not able to be derived from it. White goes on for some time arguing against the idea that Jesus intercedes for everyone. I don't find his arguments to be persuasive on that front, but the Arminian doesn't have to defend the idea that Christ intercedes for everyone. Instead, we can just simply reject the idea that the atonement and intercession are coextensive. White just does not establish that premise.
0: Um, yeah, then on page two, well, his whole exegesis of Hebrews throughout this part portion of the book is actually pretty rough. Yeah. Um, it is really rough. Um, I, don't have, I don't think we have time to do a f- full breakdown of every passage. But if, in page 243, he says, if his self-sacrifice puts away sin, how can any man but for whom Christ died be held accountable for those sins? Simple, by failing the condition, the condition to believe. That's how God can hold people accountable, because they failed the condition. Um, Then he goes on, and this is a really... I just wrote a comment on the site that said this is a really stupid argument, because it is stupid. It's a stupid (laughs) argument, and it's bad, and he should feel bad. All right. So what does the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ accomplish? The setting apart of believers. The passage does not say... By the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ, it has been made possible for people to be sanctified if they will only exercise free will. It's a really stupid argument when you start completely rewriting a passage to try to paint your opponent as foolish. It only works if you are showing the fact that they are redefining a a normal term. That's the only time that this kind of argumentation is effective. Um, but otherwise, the passage in Hebrews 10, free wills implied. It's free, free wills implied all throughout the Bible. You know why? It's because it's Jewish, and guess what? The Jews still affirm free will. Sorry, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dalton Blackman. I definitely did. Also, um, he uh, Dalton. Hey, can you go to his other comment right above? No, not that one. So sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, what that okay. one? Yes. To go back to your Rome genetic fallacy, he did say this, if White is arguing that sound theology is determined by how far from Romanism it one, one is, then he should reject the Trinity as well. And that was Ooh. kind of our point. So anyway.
2: Yeah, and you made a good point when it comes to you know Hebrews, right? That whole book is incredibly problematic for Calvinists. Like it's the book <laughs> that they don't really spend a lot of time in, like they love Romans and, parts of the Gospel of John, but they'll tend to really shy away from Hebrews, and for good reason. Like, a major problem for White's use of Hebrews to support the doctrine of limited atonement is found in the many warnings against losing one's salvation found throughout the book. Mm-hmm. These warnings entail that it is at least possible for some of those for whom Christ died to fail to be saved. The strongest warnings appeared in 6.4 through 6 and in 10.26 through 29. Now, White oddly enough, completely ignores Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, but he does try to explain away Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. I want to read the verse here because I think it's pretty clear. Quote, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So, To White's credit, he realizes the futility of the usual Calvinist interpretation of this verse, which tries to say that the word sanctification is not self-ethnic there. Uh, Instead, White posits that Jesus Christ himself is the one who was sanctified by his own blood. He says, quote, the error that is often made in regards to this passage is to understand by which he was sanctified to refer to the person who goes on sinning willfully against the blood of Christ. But remembering yet again the argument of the writer, we see that the writer is referring to Christ as the one who is sanctified, set apart, shown to be holy by his own sacrifice. And that's on page 244 through 245. Ugh. Now, this interpretation becomes impossible when we consider something that the author of Hebrews said back in chapter seven, which White White loves chapter seven, but not the early part. Um, in Hebrews 7, 7, Uh, The author is contrasting Jesus's work as a priest with the work of the Levitical high priests. Now the priests under the old covenant had to offer a sacrifice to cleanse both themselves and the people. White seems to think that Jesus similarly had to sanctify himself. However, Hebrews 9.14 is clear that the shedding of blood is for the purpose of cleansing sinners. Moreover, it says Christ was without blemish before the crucifixion, indicating that he himself needed no cleansing. Hebrews 7, 26-27 is especially problematic for White's reading. Listen to the verse. Quote, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, get this, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So, for White to suggest that Jesus needed a personal sanctification prior to his atonement for sins would violate the all-important message of this text, namely that Jesus was a better high priest because he didn't need a sanctification. The very idea that one can be sanctified by their own blood, that undermines the logic behind sanctification. The whole reason that one gets sanctified by the blood of another is because one is sinful and therefore unacceptable. For someone to be sanctified by their own blood would imply that that person is impure and so that their blood is not capable of sanctifying them in the first place. Uh, Christ was always holy, and so he didn't need to be sanctified. Uh, My friend Ben Henshaw said it the best. He said, quote, we may find it disturbing to accept the possibility that one truly, cre- uh, truly cleansed by Christ's blood can yet apostatize and perish eternally, but we should be far more disturbed by any interpretation that seeks to make the holy and blameless Lamb of, Lamb of God in need of purification by His own blood.
0: Yeah, and see, and that uh, it's like uh, I got called heretical for my views of the atonement. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: but White thinks that Jesus needed to be cleansed by his own blood because he wasn't perfect enough or something.
0: Yeah. So then also it's funny because on a page uh, to get more on my uh, atonement cake, he says propitiation, uh, page two forty six. Propitiation is the sacrifice that brings forgiveness and takes away wrath. Uh, propitiation, um, is our translation there. The Greek word, of course, deals with the idea of taking away wrath because it takes place within the Greek culture and Greek culture. That word there is usually something that they would even use in the Greek culture that carries the idea of satisfying the wrath of the Greek gods. However... Uh, if we go back to the Old Testament, and we actually understand the Jewish view of this, of course, in normative language, there is a cultural meaning of these things. And these things are, of course, are Judaic in their background, not necessarily Greek. Um, and so, when I, 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 so I talked to some Jewish friends about it, and I was like, so the laying on of hands people of their sacrifices a lot of people say that that's like a symbolic of putting the wrath on the sacrifice god's wrath is, goes on the sacrifice our sin is transferred essentially to it and then we sacrifice it however uh the laying on of hands and this kind of situation but the laying on of hands specifically is a smicha and that is a giving of authority It's the idea of that this person is my representative um, not that this person is taking on my sin is that this this sacrifice is my um, taking on of authority. So essentially the animal becomes our agent. Now keep in mind though that these sins too are not intentional sins at all in the Old Testament either. So um, every sin uh, that every sin an animal actually pays for are uh, inadvertent mistakes or inadvertent sins and uh, that's what makes Christ's sacrifice so great is that it is the same thing only for intentional and unintentional sins, it's the ultimate passover sacrifice so we're talking about here that like oh well, the forgiveness of the idea of propitiation it, it, it takes away wrath that's not what the jews mean and especially when we're quoting from hebrews which is a very deeply hebraic book so We want to make sure that we're actually being accurate in the Jewish customs when they're dealing with the Judaism. I think there's you have far other reasons to believe uh, PSA than that. But I just wanted to make sure I pointed that out, that when I actually talk to actual Jewish people and when I actually study the word and its origins, that's what it's referring to.
1: So is this a and I quote another instance where a historical term was being redefined? Page two seventy one.
2: Yes, Mister. But, but wait, uh, or but but Will, did you did you pronounce that Greek word correctly? Because if you didn't, then I can't take anything you say seriously. Well, luckily,
0: point. luckily for me, smicha is a Hebrew word, so you're wrong, and I could be wrong, and we could all just be wrong because we mispronounced something, and we shouldn't be taken seriously. I want right, to go back. Greg Benson. <laughs>
1: Benson was a wonderful man. I want to go back to Hebrews ten because I the. I took more of a philosophical um, approach to this one, which I just thought it was kind of interesting given White's worldview here, um, because he says on page 244, it's a warning to anyone who would have a knowledge of truth and yet despite this, go back to the old ways and old sacrifices. And I'm like, a warning for what though? Because how can anything be a warning if the actions of all these Jews that are reading or listening to the book of Hebrews have have had their desires already decreed by God in the singular decree before time. Um, And is this warning even possibly effectual? Because if these Jews are saved, then what is lost by going back to the sacrificial system, which they were predisposed to follow anyways, what are they losing? And if they aren't saved, can they even have knowledge of the truth? Isn't that in the category of spiritual knowledge? I thought they're incapable of that because they're totally depraved. And then on the next page he calls it a dire warning how is it dire do they have free will to change their mind are they aren't they even are they either regenerated by christ as elect or are they continually against god in always their mind totally on the flesh and capable of understanding anything spiritual so and then on page 246 he says that they spit in the very face of the son of god And I go again, if they are saved, what is the consequence of that? He kind of leaves that as an open question mark. Maybe he doesn't know. I don't know. It doesn't really come to a conclusion there. It just kind of leaves it open. If they aren't saved, isn't this, is this as worse as they would already expect? They aren't saved, so they're already destined for hellfire, right? So he can't stay within his own verbal framework of his worldview in order to even exegete this passage. So I say again, Philosophy is important <laughs> to understand scripture. You're just okay, there's my from rant.
2: my worldview, bro.
1: Yeah, stay out of my worldview. It's mine.
2: <laughs> yeah, just to, to any Calvinists who see this, read the book of Hebrews. I, if you can, like, if you want to test your um, Calvinism out, I mean, just just do a study on the book of Hebrews. Um, if you can, like, honestly read that text or that that book of the Bible as a and in like stay a Calvinist, I will be impressed because that's one that um, I think has a lot of challenges for Calvinism on just about every front.
1: Yeah, it yeah. It was that before early. or after Romans nine?
2: That's the only chapter that Calvinists read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just so we can give some direction though, I was thinking. <laughs> oh <Okay. laughs> after. So yeah, it's just like you to go down the road past Romans nine. Skip Romans eleven. Don't want to read that one. No, <laughs> don't. Don't read Romans eight.
0: Either those who before knows you predestines. We don't talk about that. So and we just we just keep going down. See, I promised that'd be you pass a couple books. You reach this one called the Hebrews and that's where you need to hang out. All right. So
2: but if you want to play it safe, just stay in your safe zone. Stay in Romans nine. <laughs> you know, don't leave that chapter. Don't and get if, context. Just stay there.
0: And if you do, go straight to John 6. All right. I was going to say uh, that. <laughs> all right. So, um, but do not read past verse 44. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, I, that's all I had to say on chapter 10. I'm going Same. to kind of Same. shut up now because uh, ten, uh, 10 was the atonement. And I had some particular things that had me like twitching and drooling a little bit. Um, but otherwise, uh, I'll kind of let you guys more tear the rest of it apart. I have notes, but nothing crazy.
2: It, it's funny you should use the word particular since particular redemption is the <laughs> word they prefer. For- Segway. <laughs> All
0: right. So chapter 11, particular redemption.
2: We have some particular things to say about this chapter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, White spends the first 11 pages of this chapter. Well, at any rate, in, in the first edition, it's the first 11 pages of the chapter, basically criticizing Geisler for his treatment of the issue of the atonement and in particular for his argument that John Calvin denied limited atonement. I don't really have a lot of comments on that whole section of the chapter. I agree with White that Geisler doesn't handle the topic well, uh, but I don't really care what John Calvin believed about the issue. So, like, <laughs> I just I found that section of the book fairly uninteresting.
0: Agreed. I remember getting to that, too, and I was like, get to the point, bro. So, yeah, <laughs> you're good.
2: But, uh, all right, so here, here we have an interesting contradiction, once again on White's part. Uh, White is pretty adamant that the Calvinist view is that, quote, the Bible's teaching on the intention and effect of the atonement precludes us from believing that Christ died to make men savable, but that he actually saved those for whom he substituted. And that's on page 266. And then he criticizes Arminians for making salvation potential. So note well that White uses the past tense when he says that Jesus saved the elect, as though this is something that has already been accomplished. One could be forgiven for thinking that White believes the elect were justified at the moment of Christ's death. Now, White goes on to deny this. He later says, quote, we are not saying that God completed and applied the entire work of salvation to the elect at the the cross. Such would be impossible since most of the elect were not yet born. What we are saying is that the elect were joined to Christ in his death, and that's on page 269. So one wonders how is, it, how is it possible to join the elect to Christ prior to their birth if it's impossible to save them prior to their birth? But leaving that aside, White's claim here amounts to saying that the elect are not, in fact, saved prior to their birth. But that starkly contradicts his earlier claim that you know the atonement actually saves the elect and uh, so that makes his view, you know, pretty much as potential as the Arminian view on this. Uh, you know, however, the salvation of believers, it's, it's certain in the Arminian view, right? White says that there's this difference uh, between Calvinism and Arminianism on this issue that the salvation of the elect is certain, he says. But, I mean, as an Arminian, I think that God knows the future perfectly and with certainty. So the issue here can't be a a difference of certainty because we both agree that it's certain that these people are going to be saved. So White hasn't really shown us any difference between his view and the Arminian view when it comes to the salvation of the elect.
1: Great points. I was going to add on page 266, he he says, "Um, In fact, it is our assertion that the words substitution should not be used of merely potential atonement for such would destroy the personal aspect of the death of Christ. And I really kind of honed in. He brings this up a lot. This is like a guiding philosophy that White uses throughout most of the book, that it has to be this personal saving, and that's, that's why it's Calvinism. Um, but this conclusion is based on a presupposed philosophy that, one, there's a deeply personal aspect of Christ's death, which I would affirm, um, but the potential for atonement removes this personal aspect for some yes. reason. But if Christ only dies for those he specifically chose and not others, then that, in my opinion, is the most impersonal thing I've ever heard. So a couple analogies to kind of bring that into perspective, in my opinion. Imagine a father having triplets and deciding that he only loves one. You're like, well, well, that dad's kind of a dick. You know, he's like, he doesn't love his other two kids, right? And that's kind of the, 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 the trope that you ask, like, well, which kid's your favorite? Well, I don't have favorites. I love all my kids equally, right? That's kind of, but they also love some a little bit more than others, but they don't necessarily hate them. Um, but go even further. Imagine a mother before her child is even born deciding that they're not loved or wanted, Um, and then they decide to kill them. Oh wait, that actually isn't hard to imagine because that's half the country right now. They think that you should be able to kill your baby if you don't want them. Um, When we talk about mothers like that, we don't think of them as loving. We think of them as unloving. We think of them as mistaken. We think of them as outside of truth. so I guess you're right, White, that's so personal that, that that's how God has to view us, that he has to, he has to choose only some and others. He's just like, nope, never going to love you, doesn't matter. Um, and then on page 268, he says the elect are known personally to God due to his decree. Um, but if they are known prior to his decree, that doesn't make it any less personal. So I would take the Molinistic perspective to that. Well, they were that, foreknow- that foreknowledge was known before... The- any decree from God. He knew what they would be like, and he knew when he had to interact with the world in order to cause certain events to accomplish the counsel of his will. So anyways, that's my two cents. I think the whole personal aspect, he just completely, it's a huge swing and a miss.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, saying that God determined, like, oh, no, no, I I arbitrarily chose, right? Because there's not, remember, in, in the Calvinist worldview, there's nothing we can do to merit salvation at all. So, therefore, it must be God. Well, if we are all equally wretches, because once one sin or even our sinful nature means we're, uns- we're not worthy of salvation, therefore, it just must be grace. How is it even considered personal that God arbitrarily chooses you? Because it is arbitrary. There's nothing that is really established in besides God's whatever free choice based on nothing besides his own arbitrary choosing. That's, it, that is about as impersonal as it gets. In fact, I would say my view of utonement is a lot more personal, which is I love you. I want to redeem you from sin, death, and Satan. I want to take you from that and restore you unto myself because I love you. Now, please take my hand. Otherwise, if you continue in sin, I will judge you as a just judge will do. That is extremely personal because it's holding you accountable for your own free choices, but also means like a genuine friendship a genuine friendship is personal because when you walked into, the chur- into church when I was pastoring that door, and you and I became good friends.
1: You saw the hearts in our eyes, yes, I remember.
0: Yeah, hearts in our eyes. (laughs) Um, And then the music started playing, I just died in your house tonight. Okay. Um, I decreed you to love me well. It's so personable. Uh, There's a a whole like Braxton Hunter uses that love potion analogy. And I think it's such a great way to put that. Um, If I put a love potion in your drink and made you like love me, that would be really impersonal.
1: Yeah. But if someone chose to love me, that's a good thing and it's personal. Yeah, one's kind of like most relationships and the other's kind of like Bill Cosby. So there's a, there's a big difference there. <laughs> and I see a big parallel, be, you know, White says later that, you know, oh well, Kel- people say Calvinists don't think God's loving, but of course he's loving, but he only just loves some people. If they're not elect, he doesn't love them. And I see such the same parallel to when we're having our pro-life discussions with people and you talk to someone who's pro-choice and like People say, I don't like kids. I love kids. I just, if they're not wanted, we should kill them. I, definitions of words matter. If you say that God doesn't love the majority of the world, then I, I don't see how you could say that he's a loving God. And Which I couldn't help but find irony in. He was on, a, well, what show was
0: that? It was a talk show, uh pretty big one. Uh, they were talking about LGBT and trans issues, and he kept talking about how God loves us, and that's why we should not be trans, is because we should model his creation, um, because God loves us and sent his son for us, and we ought to reflect his creative order. And I was like, why, you're so, like, I was just thinking while I was watching, I was like, you're so full of crap, you literally believe that, you know, Edom I, I have no Esau I have hated, and Jacob I have loved and that you justify that God is able to hate people arbitrarily that he didn't love all of us yeah you can't even know
1: who he loves
0: like so what I saw that is recently uh my coworker uh Brent has been going through a bunch of that uh and he found that and he sent it to me thinking it was funny so anyway <laughs> so basically we can that. say that it's not
2: a meaningful statement <laughs> it's
0: verse. not it's not a meaningful statement nor meaningful exegesis is a bad argument and he should feel bad not meaningful <laughs> philosophy. I, I was say. told recently that I didn't use my catchphrase enough recently. And they're they're very upset, so I'm using it again. So there you go. Geron, right. You're welcome.
2: Uh, moving on then to White's attempt to justify limited atonement, yet again from the Bible. Uh, he argues on the basis of John 17, 9. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me. And White argues that Jesus, quote, specifically differentiated between the objects of his prayer and the world. This distinction introduced in a particularly poignant salvific context causes Arminian exegetes no end of trouble. End quote, page 262 through 263. So, first of all, uh, it's noteworthy that White apparently grants that the term the world in this verse refers to those who are not elect. This will become important later when we examine 1 John 2, 2 because White is going to try to tell us that the world only refers to the elect there. Apparently, the same word can take on opposite meanings whenever it's convenient for White's theology. So much for consistency. Second, <laughs> Second, this verse says nothing about the scope of Christ's atoning work, but rather designates the scope of Christ's prayer. Presumably, White is still operating on the assumption that the extent of Christ's intercession and the extent of the atonement are coextensive. But as we saw when we examined White's treatment of Hebrews 7, he has not established the truth of that assumption. So consequently, we can reject his conclusion. The fact that Jesus did not pray for the world in John 17 does not mean he didn't die for them.
0: So you mean the world means the world?
2: Only when it's convenient for White.
0: Oh, okay. I, I've i noticed that. I, I apologize. Go ahead. Keep taking it away, Brian. Like I said, I don't have much on uh, Chapter 11. I found it mostly um, pedantic. Is that a good way to put this, a chapter? I found this one incredibly bad. Like, I just
1: didn't find it intriguing. Yeah, I only had one more note here. It was from page 266. By the way, our page numbers are matching so far, so... I think he must have just only fixed spelling errors or places where he wrote Paulman. Um, but he says on page 266, the deadness of man in sin and his inability to do anything that is pleasing to God. Um, and I'm just trying, trying to wonder what is what in the world is White saying that they can't do? And I think it is truly have faith. But faith itself isn't something that's pleasing to God necessarily. It's simply the condition for salvation. Just having faith isn't a good work, it's something that's counted to us as righteousness through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So many Christians, I, I, I used to think this long ago as a Calvinist, ironically, and many Christians picture faith as this good work that they should be complimented for, that somehow cosmically pleases this otherwise wrathful God. Um, and White infers here, seems to infer that faith is somehow this pleasing thing to God. But I think that's a wrong category. Really, is this condition for which he sets for grace to flow through self, for salvation? That's yeah, I sense think, in that.
2: I, I think that's an important point. Right? I mean, I, we could say that faith is pleasing to God in a sense, but it doesn't make you pleasing to God. Like you're not right. fully pleasing to God just because you have done something that is pleasing.
0: to Well, God. just like it's more pleasing to God to give to the poor rather than to murder, whether you believe in Him or not. Um, well, I think we many people missed these parts, but one of the things I wanted to ma- mention, I did have one note that I found was funny on page 254 in this chapter. Knowing that such a statement can be challenged, because he talks about um, Geisler, when he talks about John Calvin, um, uh he says so knowing that such a statement can be challenged, Dr. Geisler included an appendix titled Was Calvin a Calvinist? This appendix amounts to a grand total of only five page, pages of citations. There is not the first attempt to interact with a single reformed work on the subject which is ironic because he only quotes one arminian in the entire book i just can't help but find this to just be really a hilarious ironic i'm like oh i guess it's true for me but not for thee huh (laughs) you know he he could just send you know uh, five pages of citations but doesn't try to interact with the reformed work well just like you only cite geissler you don't really try to interact with any arminian work get out of here it's this much of nonsense anyway
1: (laughs) well if we're focusing on the irony of that chapter two on the next page he says, he, he, he chides Geisler saying, but even the most cursory examination of Calvin must provide more than a few isolated quotations, which I thought was really funny because I remember someone on YouTube providing only a few isolated quotations and making I don't know, like five episodes on one part of one video before you even watch the whole thing and seemed to take these isolated quotations. Even one was you reading a comment and they attributed it to you, and then I think he went on a 20-minute rant about he's taught like 100 courses on, on the Reformation. So I just find it funny that, again, Geisler's bad. You, you should not listen to him because he did that. But also, please, please subscribe to um, James White on YouTube for, for him to do that to other people, including you two.
0: Uh, well, I mean, to to be fair with White on all of that, you know, uh, he's just such a popular apologist that he doesn't need to be held to the same standard. That's that's a, that's an argument I've been hearing.
1: So. he's was literally above traveling at the time. He could have listened to you while he was driving and listened. it wasn't like you guys did a seven hour video. He could listen to more than 20 minutes before responding. No, <laughs> my favorite part is how
0: Paulman is not worth the time of the Calvinist community only like six episodes of his own show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you do have to love that, right? Anyway. Uh, I, I only had one more note here on uh, chapter 11 and I just wanted to deal with what I think is one of the most important texts uh, when it comes to the issue of the extent of Christ to telling that, and of course, that's 1 John 2, 2. Uh, the, the text reads, and he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Pretty clear, right? White tries to escape this verse by suggesting that the term whole world simply refers to both Jew and Gentile Christians, pointing to Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and John 11, 5, 2. The relevance of these far-removed passages, according to White, is that they're written by John and that they are soteriological. He makes that argument on page 275. Uh, In my opinion, that's hardly reason enough to think that they are directly relevant to the interpretation of 1 John 2, 2. Perhaps more importantly, neither of these texts uses the term world, so they give us absolutely no insight into how John might be using the word in 1 John. The fact that White is bringing up irrelevant verses suggests that he's attempting to distract from the issue at hand. And notice how upset he gets when somebody like uh, Leighton Flowers will go to a text outside of Romans 9 to interpret Romans 9. He'll be like, no, 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 you're running from the passage. But he's allowed to do that in 1 John too. Give me a break. Uh, White makes almost no attempt to deal with the formidable arguments against his interpretation of 1 John. Although 1 John's a pretty short book, it contains a whopping 23 uses of the word world. None of them can be clearly shown to mean the elect, and usually the word means the opposite. This is significant because if we're ever unclear on how a biblical author is using a word, we can consult their other uses. When there are a large number of other uses, as there are in this case, that gives us a pretty high degree of confidence in what the author is trying to communicate. And since virtually every other usage of the term world means unbelievers in 1 John, this should really strengthen our confidence that the author is using the word in the same way here. And if that's not enough, the exact term, whole world, is used again in 1 John 5.19. The verse reads. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's clearly a reference to all unbelievers. Therefore, we should read it in the same way in 2.2. To say John just means the elect in 2.2 means that he's using the same term in, the, in opposite ways, basically. We would really need conclusive evidence if we're going to accept that, and James White just hasn't provided it.
0: Um, so do we want to move on to chapter 12?
2: Brian had a good comment on chapter
0: 12. (laughs) Yeah, Brian literally texted me this. Brian, would you like to kick off with your quotation of yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. I'll quote myself like every humble Facebook user. Um, I read chapter 12 and I just thought to myself, this is the most horrific Christian literature, one chapter of Christian literature I've ever read. This was so bad. Like I read it three times like it can't be this bad. And it's of notes. I mean, it's just like, nope, that's wrong. That's not context. I mean, it's again, White doesn't even follow his own rules here that he that he goes after Geisler for through this entire chapter. Um, it's not good. It's no. really not good. Even in the second edition, it's still not good.
2: He didn't fix it?
1: I don't think so. I thought, uh,
2: did he assure us that the second edition was better? Is, is that not true? Is that bogus?
1: I mean, to be fair, I didn't read the first edition, so I just assume it's worse, but okay. so far we're... Still keeping up on the page numbers, so. (laughs) I think to
0: be fair that most anything that breaks down Calvinism, even in further detail, just gets worse by definition because it means
1: there's more (sighs) Calvinism. (laughs) Uh So even the first paragraph here, his first sentence after his quote, he says, the doctrine of irresistible grace is easily understood, and I just think, to whom? If If we're talking to the non-elect, well, they can't understand anything. Spiritual so they can't clearly understand this. <laughs> and if it is the elect, then what does it matter?
0: It's a really good point. <laughs> Who is it easily understood too?
1: It's easy to? It's you a clarification, Dr. White. Unless,
0: unless your decree not to understand it, in which case it's impossible to understand. Or
2: or if you have will in my reading comprehension, because, you know, we're not going to read
0: comprehension. Yeah, it's terrible. Don't look at my <laughs> stack of books. Don't worry about that. Um, so, um...
2: well, my first thought from this chapter was his whole case for irresistible grace depends crucially upon the soundness of his case for Paul's use of the phrase dead in sin, meaning unable to believe the gospel without regeneration. And as we saw when discussing chapter four, White didn't make that case successfully. So his whole case for irresistible grace doesn't even get off the ground, in my opinion. White, like, he asserts that the story of Jesus physically raising Lazarus from the dead is exactly like what happened when God raises the sinner to life spiritually. But the text of John 11 never states that. White is simply reading his theology into the text, and the difference should be obvious. Whereas Lazarus was physically dead, unbelievers are spiritually dead these are not the same thing as white himself admits. And so the onus is on him to prove that the inability to believe is that the, that that, that's the commonality between the two types of deadness.
0: Well, Brian said that growing up, he heard
2: the Lazarus thing
0: a lot. Oh yeah. And it's like, you know, again, that's more of a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection than is anything about our inabilities to accept Christ period. That's what it was. It was a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. So, uh, and the dead in sins, means alienated. Like, if I say David, or, I mean, sorry, guy from Dillard's, Dr. Dillard's, Dr. Dillard's, forgive me. Um, If I say, Dr. Dillard's, you are dead to me, that means you're alienated from me. Just like I am dead, I am alienated in my trespasses and sins. It says nothing about one's ability, and to read such is stupid.
1: Can you, can you explain that further by using the story of Lazarus and how David's dead to you? No.
0: Because <laughs> in order for me to make a proper comparison with David and Lazarus, I have to shoot David in the head and then raise him again. And can we, so, we not do that? <laughs> as predicted, he would not agree to it. <laughs>
2: Oh, so this is this has been pre-planned, or Brian. I didn't I didn't know you were so envious of me taking over your spot here.
1: It's been decreed. I cannot do otherwise. <laughs> um, yeah, page two eighty-four. I mean, he literally says this is seen clearly in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. What seen clearly? Well, clearly not any exegesis here because well, no meaningful exegesis. No meaningful exegesis. Sorry. Thanks for thanks for correcting me. So, he's using this to show God can, and I quote, raise one of his elect to life, he can do so without asking permission. Here's the problem. White misses the, any exegetical connection to the story of Lazarus to re- regeneration. It just isn't there at all. Not the author's intent, not even if I read this with one eye open or after several beers, it doesn't have any connection whatsoever. In fact, this isn't even the ballpark of that soteriology, or of soteriology in general. And it's a completely different, and I'll use the, the favorite word of white, category than what he's trying to use it for. Um, and in case he wants to say this is, wasn't what he was trying to do, he says on page 285, even if we could not present further direct biblical teaching, I'm like, further? You haven't done it yet. This whole chapter doesn't have it yet. So further implies that you've done it already, unless we're changing the, words of, the meaning of the word further. Um, and if the point is God can do what he wants, sure, we all agree God is sovereign. He can do what he wants. I affirm Ephesians 1.11 100%. It just isn't a deterministic view. Um, and, and non-Calvinists say that, uh, they will affirm that. They just say that Jesus wants to be freely loved. It's, we're still saying the same thing. Um, and then he continues the eisegesis on page 285. Uh, he says, corpses are not known for engaging in a great deal of conversation. And I'm like, well, then why is Satan blinding them? <laughs> Paul says <laughs> in Second Corinthians four four that he's blinding apparently these dead corpses so they don't accidentally see the glory of Jesus. How can they see the glory of Jesus if they're
0: dead? Is that also why he spoke in parables so that way they wouldn't understand? But why? But of
1: course, it kind of
2: sounds like they might have been able to if he didn't.
1: Mm hmm. So then we must ask well, is total depravity the work of Satan and not the result of sin? I, what is it? You can't, if you put a blindfold on a corpse, we're all going to laugh at you because he can't see. So stop using this dead end sin in the wrong way because it does not connect to scripture at all.
0: Also Dalton bringing it in for the win because it's what I've used on my Calvinist friends many times and no one can give me a straight answer. In fact, they always dodge it. If, we are, if dead in sin means I am unable and I am like a corpse, then what do you mean when, we, when the, uh, it says that we are dead to sin? Does that mean I'm unable also to sin? Because if I'm dead in one, meaning I'm unable, then it's, if I'm dead to, it should also mean I'm unable. Yet we have believers who sin. So, it can't be that that's an inconsistent hermeneutic. If we're dead in sin and dead in sin means I'm unable, then I must be unable to sin when I'm dead to sin once I'm saved. However, if you understand just dead as alienated, then as a saved person, I'm alienated to sin. And as a sinner who's not saved, I am dead or alienated in my sin. So, Again, uh, once again, Calvinism just is not wrong. So, I, sorry, I wanted to bring that up with Dalton. I don't have any other further notes on chapter uh, 12, by the way, because um, I. Yeah, I found most of it to be. Once the Lazarus thing didn't get off the ground, I found no reason to really take the rest of it seriously because he started off on a faulty
1: premise. Oh, I have two more pages. Dude, go ahead <laughs> take it away, man. Do your thing. Let's, I'm just letting everyone David, know. David, do you have something else to say? Otherwise, I'll just rant. and. You know, uh, I'll,
2: I'll, hit, I'll hit his misrepresentation of Arminianism, and then I'll let right. you rip. All right. So White claims, quote, Arminians contend strongly that faith results in regeneration page 287. As per usual, White cites no Arminians to back up his claim that Arminians affirm this. And in fact, we do not affirm this if by results in, White means that faith is the cause of regeneration. Arminians affirm that God is the cause of regeneration. However, we believe that he regenerates sinners in response to their faith. So we do affirm the priority of faith over regeneration. We do not affirm that faith causes regeneration. Take it away, Brian.
1: All right, so page 289. um, He says, the obvious question, he's talking about Lydia here. The obvious question is, why would God have to open her heart and to what end? And White thinks that God opening Lydia's heart is regeneration. Um, But if opening Lydia's heart allows her to hear then it would follow that hardening Pharaoh's heart would prevent him from hearing. But we are told that Pharaoh, by James White, was a vessel of wrath through the, the freedom of the potter from the beginning of time. He never had a chance to be saved, he was never chosen to be saved, so therefore he wouldn't. So why would he have to harden his heart? Because essentially, the, both the opening and the hardening for Lydia and Pharaoh must accept that they have a free heart to harden or open otherwise god is opening the heart of the heart he initially decreed to be closed and god is hardening the heart of pharaoh that he initially decreed not to be it doesn't follow this is absolute illogical nonsense it doesn't make any sense the way he's using it am i wrong here guys (laughs) does this make any sense No, because the opening and closing of the heart means simply to like a lot of times
0: like in judaism would mean something like to strengthen so like when he opened her heart, it meant like he helped strengthen her heart unto himself. So it's again, what people refer to as the wooing, like uh, bring like, again, like a relationship, I am bringing you unto myself through my relationship with you. So therefore your heart, I opened your heart, or you could say you opened your heart. It, you could actually use it synonymously if you both are interacting in a relationship. But anyway, this doesn't really prove the point. Continue,
1: sorry. My, Brian, next, it, my next point is on Paul. Do you have anything before that?
2: Well, no, the next thing I have is a whole bunch just hitting, well, just hitting his scriptural passages. So, yeah, you do your thing first, Brian.
1: All right, so page 290. He says, if anyone knew that the idea of free will was a myth, <laughs> it was Paul. Oh, really? He says, it was not free will that knocked Paul to the ground on the road to Damascus. Oh, boy. Okay. And I love, I love these Calvinist memes that point this out because I have, almost have a copy-paste thing that I just use now. Um, so, of course, it wasn't free will that knocked him down, but it was free will that made it necessary for him to be knocked down and blinded. It follows, if this is Paul's regeneration preceding faith, then why was it this grand event? Are we to conclude that this is what regeneration looks like? Was white ever knocked down on any road? Was he confronted by Jesus? Was he ever blinded? How can we even know that white is saved? He hasn't had this spectacular regeneration that we have biblical scripture for, right? So if this is just a different method of regeneration, okay, that maybe was reserved only for Paul, then we must ask why. Why is did he not get the regular old regeneration like the rest of us? Mine was pretty boring. I was just sitting in, in the Calvinist church with the wooden pew with my NIV Bible. Um, or is it more plausible that through God's perfect knowledge of foreknowledge of Paul, not beloved, foreknowledge of Paul, God accomplished the counsel of his will by intervening, knowing exactly what would convince Paul, knowing that after his conversion, Paul would be one of the greatest testimonies for Christ in the new church? Which one is more logical? That this is some spectacular special regeneration just to put more uh, people filling the seats in the pews and more people going on crusades? Or was it that Paul was a stubborn SOB and he was very well learned and it would take quite an event to convince him to stop killing Jews? And Jesus did it because what? He, he knew. He had foreknowledge. That's and, my rant. And also the story of that
0: kind of proves the fact that he did have a will because he had to interject and I'd confront him with his own glory first. It blinded Paul so much so that it took until like Paul had a full understanding of everything for the scales to fall off his eyes. So it doesn't follow. It, not, never in that, if anything, actually that position, that story helps show the fact that God interacts within time and interacts with our wills. Because he says, why are you doing this? And it's confronted with the glory of the sun. And suddenly, whoa, whoops, God, stop that. Um, he made it, he had to make a choice. Otherwise, God could have just regenerated him in such a, such a display. is kind of unnecessary and frivolous. Yeah,
1: By the way, I agree. I'm almost cracking up every time I'm watching David just like, fall over laughing while i'm talking i'm not trying to be that level of entertaining but it's very distracting i love it i love it you know you're doing really good when david starts falling apart
2: all right you know it, it, it was good stuff yeah so um but let, let me hit the let me hit his biblical case then for regeneration preceding faith um since you've you, you've torn it apart philosophically um <laughs> but it doesn't stand up biblically either, right? So first he tries to argue on the basis of John 3, 3, uh, that regeneration precedes faith. Uh, Here we have Jesus responded and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's on page 286, Uh, I bet that that White quotes that. Uh, And then White does not explain how this verse is supposed to support his case. It seems like White is assuming that Um, as Calvinists often do, that one can't believe the gospel if they haven't even seen the kingdom, but there's no reason to grant that assumption. White then turns to 1 John 5, 1. This is probably the strongest verse that the Calvinists have to support pre-faith regeneration. The verse says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child born of... Whoops, sorry. I I put too much of the verse in there. But yeah, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, White makes much of the fact that the Greek word translated as believes here is in the present tense. And he takes this to indicate that it emphasizes both the believer's ongoing faith as well as the initial act of saving faith. And from this, White argues that being born again must precede saving faith. However, the present tense does not indicate that the initial act of saving faith is in view. The text simply says that anyone who is presently believing has been born again. Whether this is because all who believe are regenerated or because all who are regenerated believe is simply not addressed. Now, White acknowledges that that's possible, but he attempts to bolster his case by comparing 1 John 5:1 with the similar language used in 1 John 2:29, which says, "Everyone who practices righteousness also has been born of Him." Now, White observes that practicing righteousness is obviously subsequent to the new birth. And so he thinks that believing must likewise be subsequent to the new birth in 5 1. But White overlooks two things. In the first place, John's emphasis is not on the order of the events in either of these verses. Rather, he's giving people a means of identifying true believers, namely by whether or not they practice righteousness or believe in Jesus. He has no interest in the priority of the new birth to these actions. He's simply observing that these activities are evidence of the new birth. In the second place, White ignores another relevant usage of similar language in 1 John. This appears only nine verses later. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. That's First John 5.10. So here we have nearly the same sentence structure And yet it's obvious that making God a liar does not precede failing to believe God's testimony. Therefore, we know that John does not necessarily communicate a logical or temporal order when using this grammatical construction. White tries to support his case for prefaith regeneration from the opening of Lydia's heart in Acts 10, as you pointed out. The verse actually fits pretty well within the Arminian doctrine of prevenient grace, according to which God has to enable people before they can believe. White tries to anticipate that move, but uh, he says it doesn't work because God opens Lydia's heart so that she would respond. Unfortunately for White, the verse does not say that. It just says that God opened her heart to respond, not so that she would respond. The verse only speaks of this being something that she's able to do, not something that she is guaranteed to do. White tries to draw a connection to Ezekiel 36:26, where we read that God Uh, takes away Israel's heart of stone to give them a heart of flesh. Uh, One wonders what the relevance of that is to Acts 10, given that in Ezekiel 36, it says nothing about the priority of regeneration of faith or vice versa. Moreover, the verse creates problems for White's interpretation of Acts 10. If one has to be given a new heart to believe, then which heart was God opening in the case of Lydia? The heart of flesh or the heart of stone. If it's the heart of flesh, why is that needed? Can't hearts of flesh already believe? If it's the heart of stone, then apparently one doesn't need a new heart before one can believe. Either way, White's interpretation doesn't work. White also sees support for irresistible grace in the story of Paul, which you also mentioned, uh, yeah, Paul being confronted on the road to Damascus. White ignores Paul's words in Acts 26, 19, where Paul says, "'I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision.' which strongly suggests that Paul had the ability to be disobedient and therefore that the call was not an irresistible one. White cites several passages describing faith as something which is given as a gift by God. Uh, Armenians can agree with that. We affirm that God has to enable us to believe. So, you know, there's no support for Calvinism there. Uh, But White goes further than this and actually tries to say that Christ is the source of our faith. He bases that on Hebrews twelve, one through two, where it says that Jesus is the author and perfecter or author and finisher of our faith. He makes that argument on page two ninety-three. So what's White suggesting here? Is he saying that Christ believes for us and that our faith is not our own action? Because it's really hard to see how else I can read his claim that Jesus is the source of our faith. In any case, White has misunderstood the meaning of author in Hebrews 12. The word translated as author, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I know White will not take me seriously if I get the pronunciation wrong. (laughs) But um, the word typically means founder, leader, or pioneer. In fact, those are all, like, you can find those words actually translated in different translations uh, here in Hebrews 12. So the word can mean author, but the context actually indicates that founder is the best meaning here. The verse is part of the opening of chapter 12, meaning that it immediately follows from Hebrews 11, which you might recognize as the great faith chapter in the Bible. Hebrews 11, the author is giving us numerous examples of faithful saints for his readers to look up to. And then chapter 12 opens with this same theme, referencing the cloud of witnesses in verse one. And then in verses uh, one through two, the author tells us to look up to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith founder fits the context perfectly. Uh, So the author of Hebrews is giving us examples to look up to, and he concludes by naming the ultimate example, Jesus, the founder of the Christian faith. The purpose is not to indicate that personal saving faith doesn't come from us. White tries to make the same point using 1 Peter 1.1, it's the opening of 1 Peter, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. It's unfortunate that several translations render the word as received, giving the misleading impression that faith is something passively acquired. The verb is in the active voice, which means that the subject is doing the action. This makes the translation obtained a better choice, as in the KJV and the RSV. This provides a serious challenge to any argument which sees faith as being given to the elect as a gift here, because one doesn't actively receive a gift. It's not altogether clear that the faith being referenced here is personal saving faith. The faith uh, of the same kind could simply be another way of saying the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, as in Jude 1, 3. In other words, it could simply be a reference to the Christian of faith, the body of doctrines which uh, followers of Jesus adhere to. Uh, But given that this is part of the introduction of Peter's letter, that understanding seems plausible. He is, after all, writing to Christians. And so that's kind of the way I uh, interpret that verse. White also uses Acts 3.16 to make the same point. Uh, The verse says, "...it is in the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health." So the syntax of this verse is really awkward in the Greek. And the verse is repetitious. That makes it difficult to translate, difficult to interpret. It's actually, if you look through like a bunch of different translations of Acts 3.16, they all render it very differently. Uh, So as a general rule, it's better to not base your doctrines out of ambiguous texts. Second, the faith being referred to here is not saving faith. Uh, It's not even clear whose faith is being referenced, whether that of the lame man or of Peter. Uh, But in any case, since the faith is not saving faith, uh, even if we're to acknowledge that the faith being described here is a gift, it it doesn't follow that all faith, and especially saving faith, is a gift from God. Third, and most importantly, White's argument seems to be based upon a misreading of the verse. The verse does not say that the faith comes from Jesus, it says that the faith comes through Jesus, Uh, and this indicates that Jesus is, in some sense, instrumental in bringing about faith. There's no thought here of faith as some sort of substance that God implants into us. The verse is simply saying that Jesus is instrumental in making faith a reality, and that can easily be read as saying that Jesus enables people to have faith. Admittedly, the verse is not clear or precise on how Jesus brings about this faith, but for, the, for that reason, because it's ambiguous, it's true that the verse does not necessarily teach that saving faith is an irresistible gift from God. Uh, in Romans ten seventeen, Paul told us that faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. Connecting that verse with Acts three sixteen, it seems evident that the faith that comes through Jesus, uh, it comes through Him because He made the gospel a reality. That means that you still have to hear and believe it in order to be saved. Sorry, that was my longest rant.
0: Uh, no, no worries. It, what it is a single episode David Paulman without a David Paulman rant? <laughs> so I don't have anything else on chapter twelve. Want to jump to chapter thirteen?
1: Well, I want to add something to that on the on the faith being a gift part. Because in page two ninety one he says, "Why should we thank God for faithfulness of Christians?" And I thought this is a really interesting question um, because he's trying to make the case that well, what are they thanking him for? Unless God specifically gave them faith, right? He asserts from Second Thessalonians one three that since they are thanking God for the brethren, their faith and their love that they knew that their saving faith was a gift of God as a result of being regenerated. But it's actually way more simple than that. You don't have to jump through all those theological hoops. It could be more simply that they were thanking God, Jesus, who was the word made flesh. You just quoted Romans 10 on where faith comes from, from hearing the word of Jesus right so they're thanking God for the scripture giving it to us giving us his revelation so that we can be enabled to hear it doesn't have to be this whole thing where we're just being given faith we were given scripture God was made flesh the logos we have we have God's word we've been given scripture and even everyone that's referenced in um, the halls of faith in Hebrews 11 we're given the word of God in several different forms and through that, they had faith in him. It seems very easy to follow that God's word is what enables faith, not this weird, mysterious regeneration, and then this irresistible faith that comes next, that you just, you're not irresistible faith, but irresistible grace, and forced faith. Well, you can't choose otherwise, right? Um, again, what is more logical here? And then on you already referenced it with the Hebrews um, 12, verses 1 and 2. My thought is when he says author, Could we quite literally be talking, again, about who is the author? The author literally of Scripture is God. (laughs) And our faith comes from hearing Scripture. So he is the author, quite literally, of our faith through giving us Scripture and us hearing it and responding to it. That's my two cents. You went the Word of God route. I like it. All right,
0: Um, so uh, chapter 13, I just had one quick comment because he gets upset that Geisler talks about uh, uh, Augustine and how when Augustine was young, he had certain views, and then when he grew older, he became more deterministic. And, of course, um, he's like, of course, you know, it can't be the fact that he just had to mature in his faith was monumental battle of Pelagius, which Pelagianism is basically a myth, if anyone has done any study on that. It's it's monumental
1: like a- battle of the thing he generated and caused controversy on.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So, oh, but, you know, there's, you know, how dare Geisler make make a difference between um, Augustine's early and later teachings? How dare he? Meanwhile, he got mad at us for broad-brushing Luther, <laughs> and then he goes, oh, as if there's not a difference between early Luther and later Luther. So again, it's a true for me, but not for this scenario. You can make a distinction between early and later Luther, but Geiser can't make a distinction between early and later Augustine. Just throwing that out there. Have a good time. Um,
1: That's all I have to say on page one. I have a chapter very non-biblical theory on Augustine becoming more deterministic as he got older, right? Because as, as he's younger, he's very hedonistic, and he's loving the ladies. He gets older, he gets uglier, and he thinks "Well, it must be God's will that they don't think he's pretty anymore. That's my two cents.
0: Wow. Yeah, I'm I mean... Not, I am not worthy to stand <laughs> in your presence.
1: I thought
2: White spends like the early pages of the chapter, like you said, correcting some of Geisler's statements about Augustine, his inflammatory language regarding the doctrine of irresistible grace. I don't have a lot to say about that um, because, you know, again, I'm not interested in defending Geisler. Um, He does turn to confront Geisler's claim that Calvinism makes God no longer omnibenevolent. His response is twofold, so he argues first that God's love does not need to be equally distributed, and two, that God's love doesn't have to be the same for everyone. Uh, It seems to me that White really misses the point. Like, we can agree that God does not love everyone in the same way. He has a special love for believers who are his children. The problem is that creating someone, causing them to sin, and then punishing them for that sin for all eternity— that doesn't seem to be loving in any sense of the word. So it's not just that God doesn't love people in the same way. It seems like in Calvinism, he doesn't love most people at all.
0: Well, right, well, it's funny you say that because uh, I, that, I, that was one of my main points as well, which is like, so, because he gets, uh, where is it? Hold on, hold on, I had the page earlier and your point jumped me ahead of it. Yeah, because he gets upset that Geiser says, then their failure to believe truly would result from God's lack of love for them. And he takes issue with that. However, this is literally the argument Calvinists make all the time when they say, Esau, I have hated. So if God hates a bunch of people then and just hates them because that's the way it is because they're unrighteous. And even though I, my first will, I decreed them to be that way, but um, then it follows that God is not all-loving because he hates a bunch of people. He hates Esau, Esau I have hated. (laughs) We're going to ignore what Romans 9's actual context is, which we are going to have an episode on Romans nine specifically. Um, we might have a couple episodes on that. Maybe you great. and I will do one that we have Jordan Ferrier on for it.
1: Let's just do a month of Romans nine, that'd be
0: fun. I would enjoy that. All right. Um, all right. So then the other thing he says here is uh on page three oh one that Arminians teach that God sends his grace to persuade men to believe, but they deny that God can actually raise man to spiritual life without his assistance and agreement. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's uh yeah, there is quite the straw man, but
1: remember, he gets, uh, my only point here. I pulled here, that same quote too. I love that you grabbed that.
0: <laughs> it's actually amazing how many quotes you and him uh, have all grabbed. We've all like grabbed similar quotes because we're like, what, what the, what? Um, One
2: of those quotes, that's just when I put like a citation needed, you know.
0: Like, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, well, what I, I wrote on the side here was that he hates it when we use the word forced or coerced even though he's literally arguing for something that's irresistible. Um, But by the way, if I, Brian, if if I irresistibly push myself on a woman, does that mean I coerced her and forced her? Yes. (laughs) So what you're saying is that there's really no difference between the word irresistible and coerced? Yes. Or forced? (laughs) I think it just means foreknowledge, beloved. (laughs) For <laughs> knowledgeable, so because he gets mad that he, he, I mean he gets to use the word persuade that Arminians say persuade, but yeah he gets mad when we say coerced. Yeah, he gets to
2: say, he gets to say that uh, we think that God is trying to save people, but right, we he can't say forced.
0: Right. So I'm just saying again, it's a true for me, but not for the double standard white.
1: All right. Yeah, <laughs> and we agree that he can when he says that God can actually raise a man to spiritual life. Without his assistance or agreement. Sure, he could if he wanted to, um, but does he? I think that's the actual point that's in contention. Scripture clearly gives a condition for salvation. The mere condition existing implies a willingness on man's part. And- Otherwise, it, the condition is meaningless for God because he does all the work, anyways. So it would be like saying, be like God saying, salvation is by grace through having skin. Well duh, of course, the same person has skin, you caused that God. So weird flex, but okay. Like it's such a weird thing to say, Well here's this condition that I set up that you had no ability to meet on your own free will, but this is a condition. It just doesn't make any sense in that worldview. Yeah,
2: I would even push it back a little bit further. Like, I agree that God, like, we don't assist God in his raising us back to life, right? I think the the issue is maybe not so much whether um, God can raise us to life without our assistance. uh, It's whether he raises us to life without our assistance, conditionally or unconditionally. Because I always want to make the, you know, really emphasize the distinction between the condition for regeneration and the regeneration itself, whereas, you know, up. the condition
1: isn't work.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. So then the other thing he says on page 303, while man has the freedom to love those closest to him with a particular love, that is not given to anyone else. God has not granted this freedom. If he is to be all loving, then his love is to have no distinctions, no freedom, no particularity. Love all the same, or love none at all, is the argument. Um, yeah, you know what's funny is this because he he says his love has no distinctions, no freedom, and no particularity. Yeah, because that would mean it shows partiality. hmm <laughs> So it's almost like yeah, and also no one is saying that God isn't able to love those closest to him freely. He freely chooses to love those who those closest to him. Those are who believe, but it doesn't mean he doesn't believe those. He doesn't love those who don't believe. I still love, like the prodigal son is a great example. God, the son left his father through sin. The father still loved his son, even though the son divorced him and made him dead to him. And then when the son returned, he loves him still. But now he loves him closely because they have they're in relationship. He doesn't love them distantly. He loves them closely. So yeah, of course, his freedom is, is given to God. What, are, what kind of argument is this? It's all rhetoric. That's all white is known for rhetoric. And that's what this
1: is. It's empty, benign rhetoric. Well, and again, I would bring up the mom example here, right? If she has the freedom to birth, because he says for God to be all loving, he could not possibly have the freedom to save some, but not all. If she has the freedom to birth some and abort others, can we all say that she is all-loving? Absolutely not. Um, and we must also ask, when God commands morality, is his nature confined to that same morality? I asked this question on Twitter, and I upset a few people, um, but does is God to love his enemies? Does God love his enemies, right? We're told to love our enemies as ourself, that, and that is a moral standard for us to follow. Is God beholden to that same moral standard? Is he a moral God if he doesn't love his enemies? Is it moral to love your enemies? Are the unelect God's enemies? Is Satan God's enemy? Does he love them? I think that's an interesting question that we should ask, and I think it has a lot of context here in what he's trying to say. The Calvinist says no, so God would be immoral then, in my opinion, if he doesn't also love his enemies like he's commanded us to love like he would be in his own matthew 7 territory of of hypocritical judgment if he's judging us for not loving our enemies while god does not love his enemies does that make sense
2: yeah basically he's commanding us to do what he's not willing to do himself right
1: (laughs) well
0: um and then over uh uh page 304 just gotta make my psa jab He says that men are sent to hell out of pure, holy, and unfettered justice. But I thought Jesus satisfied the justice. Anyway, um, sorry, David, I'm dragging you along with me on this. And you're being so polite. Um, But in verse 304, it's at uh, verse 304. Now I'm talking like this is the Bible. Somebody help me. (laughs) Uh, Page 304. He says, he quotes Geisler, where Geisler says, the extreme Calvinist God is not really all loving. And then his retort to that is for God to be all loving. He could not possibly have the freedom to save some, but not all. Let me ask you this. If I loved all people, is it possible for me to save some, but not all? If I was like, all right, here's all the homeless people in America. I am all loving and I had the freedom to provide food and shelter for all of you. But I'm only going to do some of you. Does that make me all loving? No. Then his argument here, like his argument is like for God to be all loving, he could not possibly have had the freedom to save some, but not all. Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you should. Just because like I could make a bunch of homeless people uh, stay homeless in that scenario. Doesn't mean I should. Yeah, it really gets to a question of God's nature there. Right, which is why it's like if we're image bearers of God, that's why I say all the time, we are God's children, and white gets mad. He's like, No, the children are only those who believe. I'm like, no, no. Again, prodigal son, everyone was created in his image, all of us were his were his uh children. We all chose sin. We chose it. We choose sin. Therefore, we alienate ourselves from God, much like the prodigal son. It's almost like I heard Jesus talk about this once. And that son (laughs) is still his son, even though he's not in a relationship with him, nor is he a receiver of inheritance of his father. And then he comes back, and he gets to be welcomed back into the family. So anyway, I'm done. All right, I'll stop stop ranting. All right, keep going. I I apologize.
2: I, the only last note, I mean, I have on here is that this is a really repetitious chapter. He spends the remainder of it, pages 315 through 325, just reiterating his case that faith is a gift. And I think I already answered his arguments there when we were talking about chapter 12, so we don't have to hit it all again.
1: Uh, I wanted to say on 306, there's an interesting contradiction, again, on this topic of love. Right? He says, quote, a mother loves her children with a love utterly unlike that she might have for a cousin or a co-worker. So he sets up this motherly love as this, as this really unique love. We've kind of shown, if you follow the mother analogy, doesn't make sense in Calvinism. And then literally two sen- sentences later, he says, we, exer- we exercise choice in our love. And I must ask, I thought the mother loves her children in a way unlike other love. And is she choosing to love? Is she the pro-choice mother who's like, eh, not convenient. I got some bills to pay kill it. Or is she, or what we expect motherhood to be and what we see it day to day in people that are very much pro-life, they love their child even before it's born.
0: And even when the child goes astray and does a bunch of nonsense, the parents still love them.
1: Yeah, and we've seen that in court cases, right? We've seen mothers turn in their children who have done something wrong they are turning them over to the consequences of their actions, sometimes to life in prison for something terrible that they did. Does that mean that that mother was unloving? No, that mother was also understanding perfect justice as well as perfect love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like these mothers have um, an example and to to follow for the love that they're supposed to show their children.
0: Anywho. Um, I had nothing really on chapter 14 since it was a wrap-up chapter, and uh, so and it was this kind of, again, a lot of, uh, for me, it was the end of chapter 13 and 14 were so repetitious that I was like, I already feel like I could, I've addressed these, or I, I'm, yeah, so anyway, I don't really have anything on chapter 14.
2: Yeah, I mean, which is fair, because, I mean, you know, in fairness to White, this is, you know, you'll often summarize your conclusions in the last chapter. So, I mean, a little bit of repetition is not fine there. Uh, I just had one note here on his his, his final pot shot at Arminianism. He says, (laughs) quote, the greatest joy in death, the greatest comfort in sorrow is knowing that there is nothing that is purposeless, nothing that is mere chance. Arminianism simply cannot provide this kind of comfort. If indeed the ultimate authority is what takes place among men, or sorry, in what takes place among men, is the autonomous free will of man, rather than the all-wise decree of the almighty creator of time and space, then to say that there is purpose in anything is at best a guess, and at worst a lie. Page 332. One wonders how exactly one is supposed to find comfort and joy in God during their suffering if they believe that God is the cause of their suffering. It should (laughs) also be pointed out that the level of comfort afforded by one's theology is not itself a reason to suppose that their theology is true. Leaving these issues aside, on what basis does White say that Arminianism leaves things to chance? White appears to be operating on the false dichotomy that things either must be caused deterministically or left to chance. But the defender of libertarian free will, particularly the agent causal understanding of libertarian free will, which I would hold, holds that there's a third possibility, namely deliberate causation. A deliberate choice is not a chance event, so hence affirmation of libertarian freedom does not commit one to a world of chance, as White seems to think. White's also unclear on what he means by man's freedom being the ultimate authority in what takes place. I think he's confusing causation with authority because these are really different categories. Uh, Moreover, affirming that people are the cause or the source of their own actions is compatible with saying that God is the ultimate cause of people's existence. If White means something else by ultimate in this context, then he needs to be clear about that. As stated, he appears to be operating on a false dichotomy and grossly misrepresenting Arminian theology.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. Uh, in conclusion to this book, because obviously we can't break out everything down.
1: Why I had one... one more point. And oh, we never can, mind. We can say whatever we want here now because we know White's not going to watch this part of the video until like 97 episodes later. So... <laughs> In October, we'll have to remember what we said, but I don't think he's going to get this far anyways. Um, but on page 330, he said, and he's responding to Geisler, White says, he notes that belief affects behavior, and so ideas have consequences. And then White says, and this he is quite correct. And I was like, well, that's a fascinating statement he just made, considering White's worldview and theological framework. That sure doesn't sound like inability to me. That doesn't sound like a singular divine decree to me that sounds like, what's that word? We use it all the time. Uh, f- uh, f- oh yeah. Those two words, free will. It sounds like free will to me. That belief affects behavior. And I think that's why we're told to uh, beware of false teachers. Like it doesn't make any sense for the elect to beware of false teachers. And it also doesn't follow in James three that that teachers are to be judged more harshly for what they say. Well, what is what they say matter? If it's unless they're just mere agents and they're just um, they're just acting out what God already decreed them to do, then what what does it matter what they say and why would they be judged more harshly? Are they being judged in their desire to false teach uh, teach falsely, or is it because false teachers can actually cause people to walk away from the faith, to deny Christ, to reject the Holy Spirit and blaspheme Him? That makes the most sense. So, anyways, I think this, this is the idea. I was like, oh, interesting. He acknowledges that, and I will say this of all my Calvinist friends, I don't think that you can talk in Calvinism without branching out into free will ideology. You just can't do it. You can't consistently communicate in that way because we don't think like that. Maybe we're just not decreed to think like that. I don't know. Now,
0: um, in conclusion um, of all this, now granted there's been a lot of drama that's exploded because of this book review. But this re- book, um, again, the reason why I, when David first brought this up, because I was reading it, um, went to do this review um, back in like October or November is when we first started talking about it. Um, something like that, I believe. Uh, so when, when it came down to this, like, the reason why i become so passionate about this is because what happens in a lot of the people, unfortunately for me, um, we grew our platform a little bit because we had started it for a little while, but we were inconsistent in our releasing. We ended up joining the RFP network and we joined this huge network of people who are recovering fundamentalists, and um, which is cool. But it also means that I ended up getting a lot of people who are ex-IFB and IFB followers, which is fine. But what ends up happening is that so many people who leave the IFB they run to the people who claim because what is IFB? It's legalistic extra biblical standard is what they, all these people associate with it, okay? Um, not saying that's all IFB, I know I'm speaking generally here, so be, be gracious here, but <laughs> they, they think this way. Um, so what they do is they hear this, this other group of people who are talking about Sola Scriptura, that like, that's not what the text says, and who push that, push that, push that, and then they jump ship and go to them because they also are very conservative. So they, right? Like, let's be honest, reformed people are socially and economically and politically and biblically conservative. Now you jump to that, and they're also very confident. You get people like John MacArthur, and uh, um, you get people like Vody Bakum, and these people who just speak bold statements. And it's very attractive to people who left the IFB because it feels like home without being home, mm-hmm. right? It feels like IFB, but it's not IFB. All those weird legalistic things are shed while you're able to keep a lot of the core things that you like. So then they get solo scripture. They get these people and they know they don't like Rome, so they go back and they find the Reformation, they hang out at that. So that's why, and a lot of my friends have read this book and have been influenced by this book. And a bunch of my people, my friends, have become Calvinistic, and I'm not saying that Calvinists are the world's worst people, but I find it concerning because it raises a lot of questions about the character of God. And also I don't think it actually is biblically consistent. I think it has to be continually read in and dismissed as we have seen white do when he redefines the word world, whenever it's inconvenient, things like that. So I find it not helpful. So I wanted, I'm glad we were able to do this review with somebody who was also XIFB, um, who to show the fact that guys, you know, me and David don't agree on everything. We agree on a lot of things though, but we don't agree on a lot, everything. And we are not Calvinistic, yet we take the Bible seriously, yet we are, uh, you know, we are biblically conservative folks. Um, We're not like hyper-progressive liberals or anything, so.
2: Yeah, and one point I would want to make on that is because you're right that I think the IFB does set people up to kind of fall into Calvinism. It's something I've been saying for a while And uh, I think you can have the, what people like about Calvinism. You can have that high regard for scripture. You can have that very conservative environment. And I think you can have it without Calvinism. And where I'm going to point people to this is people who are in the free will Baptists, right? These people are, they're, they're similar to the IFB in terms of like, they're uh, being very conservative, their structure, high regard for scripture. They'll even, you know, they'll even quote from the KJV a lot of them. They're not King James only, but um, uh, something like uh, Leroy Four book, Classical Arminianism, or Robert Piccarelli's book, Grace, Faith, in free will. These are solid Arminian uh, biblical scholars, very conservative. If you like that conservative style that, you know, is going to feel, you know, maybe at home to you or whatever it is that you find attractive in uh, the Calvinist circle, I really recommend reading after those guys because I think it gives you all of that without the Calvinism. So there is an alternative. There are ways to have those things that you love and not have Calvinism. And just unfortunately, they are not as well known, but they are godly men. You can tell in their writings how much uh, reverence they have for the word of God and their perspective. I mean, their exegesis is phenomenal. It like, it helped me grow incredibly in my own thinking on these issues. So anyway, that's my um, <laughs> spiel to uh, give you know, point people towards uh, that sort of material. But uh, honestly, even if you're not convinced by it, do yourself a favor and read it. I think like, White's book would have been improved if he had read these two authors, just because he would actually know, you know what he's arguing against.
0: Right. Well, then, I mean, then there's also other books as far as you know. If you want the Molinistic perspective, William Lane Craig has a has a few books like "Of God and Time" or the like. What is it? The Only Wise God, I think um is one is that one his or is that the yes. open theist book okay there's there's an open theist book with a similar name like which one was that um there is uh mere molinism dr tim stratton got to give my boy a shout out i don't agree with him on everything either but i do really love dr stratton um and then of course there is kenneth keithley there is um Oh, uh, Dr. Kirk McGregor on on Molinism too. There's a lot of different views out there. And actually, I will say this, there actually are consistent open theists with the text as well. Um, you can check them out as well. And, and I'm sorry, we got to stop making open theists like the boogeyman. Um, in fact, there's a lot of that also in Judaic sources too. Not all of them, but there are like, you, there is so Christianity is more broad. If you want people who are bold and spicy and stay, stay the true path, there's other ways to get that. You don't have to go through Calvinism to get there. You don't have to be reformed to get there. And you can have a more consistent view of God because I think no matter what, because I literally saw a Calvinist the other day when someone asked about the problem of evil, this Calvinist said, I've stopped asking such questions and just learned to accept it. And that is literally the don't think, just believe. And if that doesn't sound familiar to anyone from an IFB audience, I don't know what does. Um, so anyway, Brian, do you have any closing comments besides the fact that you thought as an ex calvinist that this book was
1: hot garbage? Yeah. Uh, The one thing I would add, um, I would just like to congratulate you two for probably generating the majority of the Alpha and Omega ministries content for the majority of 2022, which I think is exciting. I think they will (laughs) be... You know, as someone who does this, sometimes it's hard to think of a podcast episode what would be an interesting one to talk about. And you guys... You know, if he does one hour per, you know, seven minutes of content, it's going to be longer than his his Reformation series that he was bragging about. So just congratulations, guys. That's fantastic. And I'm not really worried he's coming after me because it's going to be a long time before he reads this or watches this episode. So. Yes, or
0: uh, New Testament Theology Nick Quint just uh, go check out New Testament Theologist with Nick Quint. He did a chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown, and as he said that he loved this, though, a better kind of snark than my own work. <laughs> um, and that is true. Nick Quint is a lot less snarky. Uh, we are very snarky. It's the church split, I think. I had somebody be like, they came in our comment section what yesterday, and they said something about like our tone, uh, or, and I'm like, oh, is this your first time here? <laughs> like, I, I I make no apologies. Uh, we are a snarky channel. It's not intended to just be to be taken as disrespectful i somebody put it perfectly i think it was derek he's actually in the chat he said he kind of uh looks at it as we're like the brothers always chiding everyone around us um we chide each other we chide everyone we show uh we we, ru- we jump forth with reckless abandon at everybody don't take it personally um unless we say of course certain things w- like that are definitely personal but i just think this book is bad which is sad because um i will say this with how dr white argues and i will these are my closing
1: my actual closing thoughts and i'll just add to just from the overall mentality of our channel we are trying to build mental toughness in ourselves and those that watch and it's scientifically proven that your brain reacts to being disagreed with in the same way that it reacts to physical harm and it triggers this this fight or flight mechanism in you by being disagreed with. It takes conditioning, it takes effort to learn how to be disagreed with and not freak out, to not um, go after someone, to not emotionally react, to not immediately go to a sinful reaction. So when we're being snarky and we're pushing the envelope a little bit, we added a little bit of extra snark here because honestly, James White started it with the whole Dillard's thing. It was just like, okay, we're at this level now. Here we go. We're matching tone for fun. Um but it is meant to build mental toughness and if we can't joke around and give each other some snark about this, um you know, I think Paul has some great examples of some serious snark in the New Testament. I think we have a little bit of example here and that's okay to to be a little sarcastic because it makes a point. And if you can't take a little bit of sarcasm that feels a little bit straw manny because you're like wow you disagree with me i got to get mad about it i don't i don't know that you're ready for this channel yet (laughs) i don't know that you're ready for a lot of uh disagreements in the church and that's when there's problems and then you split churches because something got you all upset and you're going to take your toys and go to the next church five seconds down the road and that is not the church that will set up an axe it's not that's my two cents.
0: Wow, that was quite the tirade. But no, it's true, the, the idea of mental toughness, because people do get take that the wrong way, which is why it's like, no, we're gonna crack jokes, we're gonna snark, we're gonna we're gonna make little jabs and and, and people can do that with me. I'm fine with it. I actually, all the time. Check out our apologetics
1: group on Facebook. People roast me all the time on there. <laughs> yeah, and I call David Ballman nine years old as often as I possibly can on Facebook because he looks really young yeah well
0: and also and now to be clear now the reason why i think we i've we've cranked up the snark <laughs> okay a he's little. 11 now look at that beard uh, he's 11 with a beard <laughs> now to be fair now i did want to clarify it. yes we were snarkier throughout this and that's because again white set the tone now Br- david did a hot take someone could say david set the tone david did a hot take anyone knows the internet what internet culture is you're supposed to scroll by hot takes with a laugh okay if you know anything about internet culture, it's like taking a meme seriously. If you take a meme seriously, what is wrong with you? But anyway, um, so White set the tone in his response. And then when we did, our, he get, got mad at David for being a little bit more bl- blunt about his thoughts on White's behavior, including calling him not a humble man. And Low-hanging then- fruit. Yeah, low-hanging fruit, that wouldn't really bother them. And then after that, it turned into, I'm going to just attack these guys, call them heretics. I'm going to attack their reading comprehension. I'd say they'd fail. Um, By the way, I'm rocking like a, like I'm rocking like top level in my classes, always have rocked, I'm an A student through and through. I think the lowest like grade point average I've ever had is a 3.98. So get at me, bro, Um, just because I disagree with you. Um, anyway, so with that being said, you guys will notice something with white and I'm going to point this out because this, this is something that a lot of people don't realize because they're not familiar with debate tactics. And just cause you're, and you can criticize people's debate tactics, even though you don't debate formally, because that's the thing white will do He'll be like what you want to debate. You want to try that? Try that on me. It's like, um, no, dude, I can point out your methods when he argues against King James only he gets on them for being presuppositional and circular. Okay and then he becomes evidential as apologetic against them which is why he's effective at destroying King James onlyists then you get to Mormons and he does the same thing you get to um Jehovah's witnesses and he does the same things so you get to him with unitarians or other people who deny tri- the trinity and he does the same thing then suddenly when it comes to calvinism he becomes circular and starts reasoning within just like he gets on the king james onlyist for he goes from being an evidentialist apologist to be in a presuppositional apologist. And I'm not the only one who has has noticed this. I thought I was crazy for the longest time, and other people pointed it out. Have you noticed this as well, David?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, I've said for a while that White becomes noticeably less rational when the issue of Calvinism comes up.
0: (laughs) Nick, Will didn't mention that the top GPA is a 10, not a 4. Let the nerd understand.
2: I, I also want to say for anyone who thinks that like we have been rude or disrespectful or anything to white in this. And I mean, granted, I don't think of him as this towering intellectual. Right? I mean, I don't think we've like overtly really insulted him and stuff. But um, if anyone thinks our you know, demeanor here has been out of line but you think that his has been okay towards us, that I have to say that you are not viewing the situation objectively. Because White is it like much baser and more vile things about Will and myself than we have ever dreamed about saying about him. Uh, so, I mean, in terms of tone, my personal feeling on this, and I know I am biased because I'm part of it, but it's been that we have been much more respectful towards White than he has been towards us through this whole thing.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, well, to be to be to be fair, I mean, you you and I aren't going in there. You and I both find ad hominem attacks to be usually distasteful. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, you can just compare the two. I don't really care. Uh, I'm not here for a popularity contest. I don't look at him as a towering intellectual, but I did look at him as someone I, um, as someone I uh, respected, at least mostly. But the Calvinism thing is just, it's. It, I don't. I find Calvinism in general to be lacking. Um, it's hard for me, I, I, which is sad, because there's a lot of people who I love that are Calvinists. And anyway, but with that being said, guys, um, does anyone have anything else to say at the end here?
1: My snark take is empty. That's okay. That's a lie.
0: That's always, that's always on full. That's right. I'm just gonna level all the rest of it at you after this. So. Yeah, it'll right, right when we get off here. So, all right, guys. Well, if you haven't already, um, David, what is the name of your podcast that you are now rolling with?
2: Uh, it's called Christian Evidentialism.
0: So go check out David Paulman and his co-host at Christian Evidentialism. This is the Church Split. This has been our review of the Potter's Freedom. We may or may not do a response to Dr. White. Uh, so at least his early videos, we'll see um, here soon. So with that being, would that (laughs) be really trying to see how much you had to read?
1: This one's bigger. I read more.
0: That one is fatter. Congratulations. (laughs) I did more work. All right, guys, this has been the church split. Take care and God bless.